It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. The narrative here as it relates to rates here in the U.S. is pretty clear. The Federal Reserve is job number one is fighting inflation. They've been raising rates uh, to do that. The question is, you know, kind of when will they stop? Where will they stop? And a lot of folks are saying, let's talk about the European markets and the UK markets. What's going on there? We touch base with Hugh Worthington. He's a European rate strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence based in, in London. Hugh, thanks so much for joining us here. Give us your sense of kind of what you're seeing there in the UK and Europe uh, in terms of the rate environment. Uh, what, what are you seeing over there? Uh, well, I think I think the uh, the situation in in the UK is probably more analogous to what's uh, going on uh, in the US. The UK has been hiking rates for some time. It's been you know it, it's it's got itself fairly well down the curve in terms of uh, of of coming of negative of exiting the negative interest rate policy. But the ECB does seem to be lagging uh, still a little bit, and I think there's there's concerns that you know they uh, they they're, they're still behind the curve and. Their, their focus is, is a primary focus on inflation. They don't have a dual mandate like the Fed does, for example. And I think that there's, there's a definite sign of, of, of a change in attitude there. There's, if you like, the Germans seem to be much more in control of, of the ECB. And, and the focus very much remains on fighting inflation, and it's going to continue that way, I think. And I think they're, they're basically the latest things they've been saying is that they are going to be hiking in, in December, and they're going to keep going, and they're going to keep hiking into restrictive policy. And it may well be that they're, they're still doing that, whilst people like uh, the Fed and the Bank of England may well be starting to ease off a little bit. Well, that's interesting to me because on the one hand, you have these odds of recession in the U.S. specifically going to 2023 really ramping up, but those odds have been quite strong, I want to say for at least a year now in mm -hmm. Europe. Why would they keep hiking? Is it just to perhaps close the divergence between uh, the ECB and the Fed and other central banks, or is there a real fundamental reason behind it? Well, I think I think they're they're very concerned that they 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 you know don't forget the ECB was still printing cash uh, to buy bonds back in uh, as early as as late as June, so they they were still you know being very accommodative when things were uh, being being much more restrictive elsewhere. Uh, also, you've definitely got a, 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 some things that are happening in in Europe which haven't happened for many many years. For example, there's, there's latest data on wages out uh, from the funny enough the Central Bank of Ireland on wage growth in places like Germany, uh, wage growth running at something like 7%. And those sorts of mm. figures you haven't seen for 50 years. And it's very hard to know that they think that the ECB is going to get their inflation target back down to 2% when German wages are running at nominal wage growth is running at that sort of level. So they are basically saying that they are going to be having to be hiking into, a restrict, into restrictive territory. And as I say, they, they look sort of, you know, worryingly behind the curve when you know, rates still look pretty low in Europe compared to uh, 
what they are in, uh, in the Anglo-Saxon uh, sphere. Um, also, I think you know, definitely QT is definitely going to be on the, the agenda there as well, and that's going to be something which is going to um, be um, probably restrictive for, for yields and maybe something which means we can keep yield curves pretty steep in the UK and Europe. There's a lot of uh, issuance that needs to be done to meet in particular things like you know, the energy subsidies that are being put in place to help the, the economies in, in the wake of you know, Putin's uh, illegal actions in Ukraine. Yeah, that's kind of where I want to go, Hugh. I mean, you know, the U.S., our, our recession discussion is generally, if it happens in, in 23, you know, how short will it be? How shallow will it be? That tends to be the discussion narrative. Talk to us about kind of as European banks continue to tighten, what's the recession discussion over there? Well, I think I've, I think the U.K. probably is already in recession. Yep. Um, and we're expecting a pretty long, if, if relatively shallow recession, not to not such a hard uh, recession like it was in 2008, but it looks like the, the Bank of England and, the, and, and the, the, uh, the Office of Budget Responsibility in the last week's statement in, in, in the UK Parliament was expecting pretty much a recession to last all next year as well. So it's going to be pretty long and pretty painful, but maybe not as, as, sh- as sharp as it was in 2008. And it's very much going to be a similar situation, I suspect, um, in, uh, in Europe, and in particular in Europe this time round. Uh, Germany is going to be leading the way, the way down, and obviously in, in past crises in Europe. It hasn't been Germany that's been hit so hard, but it looks like Germany is going to be the, the, you know, the, main, uh, uh, the main impact will be in Germany probably uh, next year, I, I suspect. Uh, we have about literally 30 seconds here. When does QT start for the ECB? I think they'll announce it in, in December. Um, I'm not sure they'll, they'll announce it in terms of active sales, but it'll just be basically not letting, uh, not reinvesting bonds as they roll off. And that's obviously going to add an awful lot to what is already very, very high in, uh, issuance needs. And that's going to be keeping pressure on yields and spreads high in, uh, in Europe. All right, Hugh, great stuff. As always, always appreciate getting your perspective. Uh, the UK European rates outlook. Uh, there, Hugh Worthington, European rate strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. He's based in our London office, Queen Victoria Street. Extraordinary building uh, in the city of London. Just spectacular. Our brand new headquarters over there opened up a few years ago. Good stuff. Uh, looking at the markets here, uh, the pound. Uh, one spot, one eight on your sterling. And you're ab- above parity here. Uh, remember, we were below parity several weeks ago. One spot, zero two seven eight on U.S. Euro 10-year Treasuries talking about rates. 10 years up 13, uh, 30 seconds, pushing that yield down to 3.77% on your 10-year Treasury. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com. Let's talk a little education now, shall we? Stephen Kramer, he's the CEO of Bright Horizons. That's a New York Stock Exchange traded company. The symbol is BFAM. You put that into your Bloomberg terminal. Uh, education services company. The company also offers child and other dependent care solutions oh, yeah. as part of their employee benefits. We work with them. You do? Awesome. Well, Bloomberg. Bloomberg works with we them. We do? Is what I mean. Yeah. Oh, if awesome. If you, um, you know, have an emergency and you need child care, yeah. an unexpected emergency, or if you just, um, you know, have, if you're sick and you need child care, yep. uh, they'll step in to help. Oh, cool. Excellent. Uh, Stephen, thanks so much for joining us here. Talk to us about Bright Horizons. What are you guys up to these days? What's your strategy over the next 
several years to, to, to drive your growth? It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for including me. Uh, and thank you, obviously, to Bloomberg for being a great client over many years. Uh, our strategy remains the same as it always has been. We are uh, very focused on working with our employer clients to support uh, their employees uh, to integrate their work in their life. Uh, we do that through the provision of on-site child care centers. We provide backup child care, as you just outlined, uh, and elder care. And then in addition to that, we support organizations and their employees with workforce education. And so certainly uh, we continue to see great demand across our services and continue to focus on being across those services and also continuing to operate in multiple geographies across the globe. So what kind of growth are you looking at? I can imagine that employers now, as they do things like expand um, uh, parental leave uh, policies and look to offer more solutions for, for daycare and elder care, um, they can attract better candidates um, if they have you know Bright Horizons working with them. So what kind of growth are you looking at? Yeah, so we, we continue to focus our growth uh, with our employer clients, and you're right, uh, as they continue to recognize all of the challenges that their employees are facing with child care and other dependent care uh, needs, as well as uh, in workforce education. Um, we continue to expand our client base. We continue to expand the utilization of our services, and ultimately that propels our growth forward uh, each and every year. Is it quantifiable? Yeah, so in uh, typical times, uh, we were growing at sort of, uh, call it 8 to 10%. Um, we had a major dislocation, obviously, in COVID. Uh, and so uh, back in March and April of 2020, we closed 80% of our centers, obviously wow. saw a significant degradation um, in, uh, in our revenue as well as the services that we deliver. Um, we are, uh, at this point, continuing to grow at a much faster clip against the comps of the prior two years. Uh, but we expect in the long term that our growth algorithm will come back into uh, that more normalized place uh, and continue on on that uh, starting in the next year or two. So, Stephen, I, I got to imagine, like many, many, many businesses and industries, you were dramatically impacted by uh, the pandemic. How have you, your discussions with your clients kind of evolved over the last several years as, as we come out on the other end, other end of this pandemic? Yeah, so there has been a great awakening uh, among employers. I call it a great renaissance among employers, uh, recognizing that they need to lean in more heavily than they ever have. And so uh, in the current situation where there's a war for talent or even in a scenario where employers are just simply looking for, um, you know, supports that allow for productivity of their employees, um, there has been great receptivity towards the services we offer. Um, I think it's well understood that through the pandemic, um, you know, somewhere between 10 and 20 percent of child care centers uh, across the U.S. permanently closed. And so uh, there is an expectation among employers that there will continue to be a great imbalance between supply and demand. And so employers are looking to lean in and support their employees uh, to provide better access, uh, higher quality and more affordable care. Uh, and then on the backup side, we've seen really significant growth uh, because, again, uh, employees have uh, really uh, needed those extra supports as uh, some of the uh, supports that were generally available to them in their community have really dried up. 
What, what are the kind of challenges that you face in terms of child care and elder care? I imagine it's a business that is rife with regulation. Um, compliance must be uh, difficult. And, um, you know, you've got to have a certain amount of sensitivity as well for both of those uh, for both, both of those demographics. Yeah, so I, I certainly think, um, you know, that there is uh, strong regulation. I think there are, um, you know, a maniacal focus on health and safety and other things that we do and, and over 35 years have really uh, perfected in terms of making sure that what we're delivering every day is high quality and meeting the needs uh, of those who we serve. I would say the biggest challenge um, is around workforce. So there is a significant shortage of teachers, and we see that across all the geographies in which we operate, but specifically acute here in the U.S., where their pre-COVID was a shrinking pool of talented people going into early childhood education. Uh, that was exacerbated uh, in the pandemic. And so I would say our biggest challenge is really on the workforce side in terms of attracting, um, you know, talent mm. into the field and then ultimately to Bright Horizons. So how difficult is it then to uphold margins? Because I can imagine, you know, um, teachers are going to be wanting substantial hourly $20, 25 uh, uh, salaries and Parents are going to want to pay less than, what, $1,500, $2,000 a month. But that, that puts you in a tight spot. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, certainly um, we have always looked to be at the top of the market in terms of uh, the pay that we provide to uh, the heroes in our classrooms, our teachers. Uh, and so over the last several years, we have accelerated wage increases pretty significantly. Um, to quantify it, it's you know been more than 20% to our teachers uh, over the last several years. And so um, obviously, uh, working families struggle to afford the investment in early childhood education. But the reality is it is expensive to deliver. And so we have always relied upon our employer clients to help their employees to uh, offset some of the costs of childcare. And that's really what makes our model unique, right? Which is our employer clients lean in and uh, provide subsidy so that their employees are not responsible for uh, the full cost of childcare and the full cost of delivering that childcare. And ultimately that becomes an important benefit uh, to them for working at companies like Bloomberg. All right, good stuff. I uh, really appreciate you taking the time. Steven Kramer, CEO of Bright Horizons, again, a New York Stock Exchange listed company. BFAM uh, is the symbol to type into your Bloomberg terminal there. So uh, you're a user. Yeah, yeah. well, uh, we, we can. It's a great uh, service that Bloomberg um, offers. You know, the interesting thing, the comparison I make is between what the system in Germany and here, right? Okay, because go. I just moved back. I pay more in taxes here. Yep than I did in Germany. Really? But childcare was free there. Ah. So they had fantastic so daycares with organic food and musicians and farm field trips over there. And here it's like two or three grand a month yep. um, for the basics. Yep. All right. So Compare and contrast. Berlin, New yeah. York City. I'm not saying which one's better, but just compare and yeah. contrast. Yeah. All right, S&P up eight tenths of 1%. We'll take that on a holiday Tuesday. This is Bloomberg. a little bit of a deal here uh, and it really got my attention Sockgen or Societe Generale uh, is doing a deal with Alliance Bernstein Alliance Bernstein is one of the combination of two of the best names I think in uh, U.S. global finance Jonathan Tice he's a senior analyst of uh, European banks 
for Bloomberg Intelligence. He's based in London. Uh, he joins us. Hey, John, you know, the story that we've heard over and over and over again over the, the years is kind of the European banks retrenching, uh, pulling back. I'm thinking Credit Suisse, Deutsche Bank. But what is Sockgen doing? Well, I mean, you can completely right. And Sockgen has only just finished um, about three years of a lot of disposals. Bear in mind, they sold their stake in the Monday to um, Credit Agricole. They sold Lixor to Credit Agricole. They've exited a number of businesses, but um, they are pretty strong in equities and prime services, of which cash equity is probably not the strongest part of it. So I think they're trying to do what BNP did with XMAP, um, and they've picked a very good franchise. I'd agree with you about uh, Alliance um, and Bernstein Research. So uh, what does this mean? Are they going to be moving, uh, pushing to move market share higher? Um, is SockGen making a play here? Are they an aggressive deal maker now? Um, no, but basically the outgoing CEO who, who um, leaves May of next year has been there for 15 years, a lot of ups and downs. The new guy coming in is ex-corporate um, investment banking. Um, clearly a lot of the restructuring has been done, but... Um, if you look at, say, their equities division, they've beaten for the last six quarters, and I don't think any bank's done that. So they've got a pretty good franchise there. He's making his mark. He's confirming that um, Solgen is a European player and a global equities player wants to play. And as I say, I think they've looked at what BNP did with Exxon over a few years, eventually buying it in um, a year or so ago, and, and the strength of their franchise there. And they're trying to do the same thing. They have said we don't think there'll be that many um, job cuts. There's not that much of an overlap, probably 900 staff in total across the two businesses. Um, it's a sensible move, and in terms of how they're paying for it, I mean, European banks are actually profitable again. So they're paying for it by using up some of the capital they're generating. You know what I thought was interesting? Um, so SockGen takes 51%. Uh, Alliance Bernstein gets the CEO position, um, and they're going to be headquartered in London. Why headquartered in London. Five years ago, we thought maybe that was going to shift as a as a financial hub, you know, to the continent, or maybe more business would come back here to New York. But is it still just so attractive that uh, when you're there, you can get the best talent? Well, I think it's time zone. Um, it is also language. Um, as you say, the Bernstein um, research is uh, quite US heavy, very English speaking. Uh, and also, the UK is, is doing everything it can with um kind of watering down post-Brexit, etc., to make this as nice a place to be a bank as possible. Uh, we were even looking at things like tweaking banker bonuses. We've removed the cap. So there's no reason to um, rush anything. And, I mean, this is they've got five years to buy the remaining 49%. Um, this isn't going to be done in a hurry. But I think as a starting point, it makes sense it would be in London, given the, the U.S. Um, and American English-speaking component of uh, Bernstein. So, uh, Jonathan, you cover all the, the European banks here. This seems a little bit of, you know, out of step with some of the other ones. Does this suggest that maybe some others, European banks, may be looking to maybe increase their Europe, their U.S. exposure, um, maybe thinking that 23 will be a better year for the financial markets? Not at all, no. I think what this is, though, this is a bank that's come to the end of a very long and painful restructuring, okay. a la Deutsche Bank, uh, and it's looking at the businesses it's doing well in. It is profitable. It's generating capital. It's got more capital than it needs. So it's sort of building out in the franchises. Another franchise it's got, ALD, is, um, you've probably never heard of it, but it's pretty much the biggest leasing company in Europe. Um, and it's going great guns. That's another business that they are building out via acquisition. The equities franchise, they used to be very, very strong derivatives. Remember, the French blew up massively in 1Q20. 
They've got through that. They've got revenues right back again. This unit's supposed to make about three billion next year. So um, they're just sort of moving on to the next CEO and consolidating in the businesses that they're good at. Jonathan, when you talk to your institutional investor clients these days, what is their kind of 2023 outlook for kind of European and UK banks? Well, I mean, the thing is, we've been waiting for 10 years for revenues to start going up. They started <laughs> going up, rates went up, net interest income went up. Then the Ukraine invasion happened. The market sort of has begun to look through it. But the fact is, we can see the peak of the rate cycle now. So they're now worrying about the downturn and quite how badly bad debt um, is going to impact the banks. And we have an accounting standard that's reasonably new and pretty untried and untested. So they're a little bit sceptical. We're more bullish. We're comfortable that the banks will weather this and actually report double-digit ROEs, which um, if you've looked at European banks for the last 10 or 15 years, you can't even remember the last time you saw that. Wow. And did 30 seconds, Jonathan, Brexit, did it kill the city of London, do you think, or is it just a, a minor blip? It hasn't helped, um, and hopefully the new government is going to stop um, kind of the UK and the ECB um, being at war about things like um, euro clearing and derivatives. So hopefully the hostilities will cease or at least soften. But yep. no, it didn't. It didn't help. All right, good stuff, Jonathan Tice. He covers all the European and UK banks for Bloomberg Intelligence. He's been doing it for decades. One of the best uh, in the city of London. So he's seen it all. But I mean, he gets a master's in classics literature and linguistics from i don't know oxford or cambridge or one of those two that's things. a super duper uh banker major and then you go yeah the classics, and then, you, and then you, know? you go to financial services i just don't get it but uh he is a really really good uh bank i would so guess a massive it. i would guess a double digit percentage of successful bankers majored in classics classics all right yeah. i'll take your word for they it they love it that's why always the hedge funds have like greek god names <laughs> The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Let's talk energy here. Yesterday, as John was just mentioning, today we got WTI crude oil, $81.45. We had a seven handle uh, yesterday, which got my attention. We got gasoline prices, unleaded, regular, yeah, I rolling mean, I, over. You shouldn't again. with that. I'm going to tell you, that's not good for your engine. Yeah, that's <laughs> Your probably. car was engineered to tank 91 octane. All right, so I'll, and I'll you're tanking 87. I am. It's so, cheaper. Yeah, I know. In the long run, it's not. Do, do you love your car? I is do. The question. Yes, you do. Okay. And will you be able to replace it? No. Okay. BMW does not make those anymore. All right. I'll take better care of it. Uh, but diesel is the issue here. And I want to talk to Much more important fuel uh, I, for the global economy. Exactly right. Scott Levine, Senior Energy and Industrial Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, joins us. Hey, Scott, talk to us about diesel. I mean, I don't put it in my car. Uh, I don't like the sound diesel engines make. Oh, but dude, it's big. Miss, it's great. It's a great sound. <laughs> Talk to us about diesel uh, fuel, Scott. How concerned should we be? Yeah, you have kind of a unique phenomenon going on with diesel right now. And if you look at your uh, local gas station, you'll see a gap uh, of close to $2 a gallon in some places between diesel and gasoline. And that's abnormally large, obviously. And uh, the primary reason for that, I think, is uh, unusually low inventories. 
of diesel, uh, we're at less than half of where we typically are this time of year uh, for diesel fuel. And diesel fuel is much more commonly used to fuel trucks and the industrial economy at large, is also used in the Northeast uh, as a source of heating oil. And so it's that, uh, that phenomenon with inventories and getting additional supply to the Northeast in particular that is uh, gumming up the works and driving a spike in diesel prices and causing some concern uh, coming into the winter months where you know you could have harsh uh, weather and some very uncomfortable people right. unless uh, we get some additional supply cooking up there. Well, in, in other countries, um, diesel is very common as uh, personal transport fuel. You know, um, a lot of people drive diesel engine cars in Europe. That's not really the case in the U.S. Um, and I guess it doesn't matter as much because Europe has public transportation. But uh, how how hardcore is the knock-on effect going to be in terms of shipping costs? You know, we we see shipping costs coming down broadly, but if diesel is short, I can imagine um, truckers and uh, you know um, boat vessel operators are going to have to raise prices. Yeah, it's going to definitely provide an underlying support. Uh, for, for the transportation industry at large, uh, more so in Europe, as you point out, than in the U.S., but in both places. Uh, and there's a somewhat regional phenomenon here in that Europe is going through its own um, uh, energy supply crunches, you know, uh, knock on effect of the uh, Russian uh, invasion in Ukraine. And so they've been trying to uh, resolve their own uh, crunch uh, in terms of uh, diesel, natural gas, which can also be used as uh, sources of heating fuel over there. So whereas that's potentially, or in the past has been a source of supply and could be used to alleviate some of the pressure that we're seeing in the U.S. Northeast this year, uh, that is not the case clearly this year as, uh, you know, the European countries in general have been building up inventories uh, in advance of a uh, uh, supply crunch for this winter. So know a knock-on effect there but yes this certainly underpins uh higher pricing for the transportation sector in general and maybe helps them overcome some of the cost pressure that they're seeing on the labor side hey scott you know whenever i hear about energy shortages whether it's diesel or nat gas or gasoline my first response is just crank up the refineries what's the big deal go down to texas and louisiana and get those things going but that's not the case is it tell us what the refining situation is in this country yeah, um, you know, unfortunately, uh, in this instance, with diesel being the issue, U.S. refining is much more geared toward gasoline than diesel. I think you get two uh, gallons uh, out of every barrel for every gallon of diesel uh, that you produce here. So the, uh, uh, the cracks are, are skewed more towards gasoline than diesel inherently in this country. And from a gasoline standpoint, yeah, we're higher, certainly higher than, than we'd like to see, you know, at $4 a gallon or thereabouts, but uh, not abnormally high, certainly nothing like we're seeing in the diesel market uh, right now. And, uh, you know, that's kind of consistent with $80 uh, crude uh, or thereabouts. And so uh, we have not seen much of a, a push to increase refining capacity within the country. If anything, what we need to do is make it easier to get from one place to another from the existing refineries that we have, and it's typically the Gulf Coast that serves the majority of the eastern seaboard. So 
Uh, to make it easier, would, how? You mean like more pipelines or uh, more ships? How do you make it easier to transport? Yeah, so we'll start with uh, the pipelines. Pipelines is an obvious way, and we have an administration, obviously, uh, that is uh, against pipeline construction, uh, particularly as it relates to hydrocarbons. And so Mountain Valley Pipeline is still on hold. That's one of the big conduits along the eastern seaboard uh, that has been on hold pending uh, resolution of environmental permits. And then, you know, if we were to look at shipping, uh, it's the Jones Act. The Jones Act requires, uh, you know, the ships that carry uh, crude uh, right. within uh, the area to be uh, on U.S. flagged ships. And there are significant uh, limitations there. Yep. So you have transportation bottlenecks that are really making the situation worse. Yeah, I think we need somebody needs to look at that Jones Act. I keep hearing about that all the time. And when we think about not having fuel in the Northeast, What's up with that? So anyway, Scott Levine, Senior Energy and Industrial Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Markets uh, moving higher today, uh, lower volume, but moving higher. We'll take the green on the screen. Let's check in on what we should be doing in these markets. Uh, Tom Mantione, he is a managing director at UBS Private Wealth Management. Hey, Tom, you know, we're thanks so much for joining us here. We're, you know, we're 10% or so off the bottom here in the S&P 500. Mm -hmm. What are you telling your clients these days? You know what? I think the next three to six months, you have to still understand that we're going to remain volatile. We're going to watch every Fed governor speak. We're going to listen to what they say. We're going to parse every single word Ugh. and look for clues as to when the Fed is going to stop. Uh, but at the, uh, you know, I, I think the the heavy lifting is behind us, right? So I think next three to six months, be defensive, look for value. Think staples, healthcare, energy, defense, infrastructure, income plays, but but somewhere in 2023, you got to think inflection. Right, things are going to change. By the way, as an aside, don't you wish fewer of them would speak? I mean, you've been in this industry. <laughs> you've been at UBS for like 20 years. You were at Mother yeah. Merrill before that for 10. Mm -hmm. um, it didn't always used to be like this. Every single <laughs> Fed speaker offers a different opinion, moving the markets each time. Yeah. It can't be good. It, it, you know, I don't don't forget, we used to watch the briefcase, remember? Alan Greenspan had his, his yep. briefcase and whether it was thick or thin. I, you know, I, it, so a little bit of this has been almost my entire 30-year career. I, it, <laughs> it, it, it never ceases to amaze me how how one word can move a market, you know, three, three percent in, in either direction. I think the, the longer term investors here can find opportunities in those moments. But do you right, have, think. do you have clients who say like, Tom, enough of this macro crap, like give me some bottoms up <laughs> research. It seems like no one cares about companies. Well, you know, and, and I think this is definitely 2022 has completely shown you that earnings matter. Right. And and I think we've seen that in the last few weeks where stocks that didn't have a, a good things to say, didn't do a good job, have been punished severely by this market. And then stocks that that have done well and have navigated what has been a very difficult year from an interest rate and inflation perspective, certainly with supply chains, those companies that have done well have been rewarded. So there are there are names on the board that are up this year and up significantly. And I think being positioned uh, the right way has helped, but you know you're not going to get it right every single time. But I do agree with you. I think I think thinking macro is helpful, but 
you, you need to bring it back down to reality every once in a while. And, Tom, you mentioned financials is a sector you like. I mean, do I want to mm-hmm. own kind of the big money center, global banks, the J.P. Morgan's, the cities, or do I want to go maybe regional banks who may benefit more from a, you know, it, you know an economic mm-hmm. kind of reopening as we get through whatever recession we're going to have in 23? I, I, yeah, I love that. You know, whatever recession we're going to have in 2023, I think people have been talking about recession now for, it seems like, a year and a half. Um, and it hasn't it hasn't yet occurred. I think you need to own both. I think the I think the big money centers have have uh, tailwinds here. I think the regionals also have tailwinds. Obviously, I think that there's some some regional risk to certain industries uh, that 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 may or may not do well in a in a recession in 2023, given the type of recession that we're having. Uh, or, or or may have, I, you know, it, it, nothing is a fait accompli. But I, I like I like both sectors here. I also think staples in healthcare, uh, and and obviously we've seen some some positive and negative earnings reports in the healthcare sector. So you need to be really smart about what you want to own uh, and why. But I do think there are some, uh, at least for the next three to six or nine months, some 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 places. I, I hate to use the word hide, mm. but some places to be defensive. If people want to be, if investors want to put more risk on the table, what do you think about going outside of the U.S.? I mean, I'm assuming most of your clients are here in America, um, but yeah. with the dollar, it had climbed to such amazing heights. I mean, what an opportunity to invest elsewhere. Certainly, you, you can look to APAC, you can look to Europe, but you, you, if you're worried about the U.S. being in a recession in 2023, I think you've got to be much more concerned about what's happening in Europe. I think the geopolitics on the in the European continent are are significantly more dangerous than that than they are domestically here in the U.S. So uh, they obviously have a, a significant energy crisis that's going to take some take a while to 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 work out and. And that is that is uh, you know if we can control inflation here with the Fed, it's be much more difficult for the ECB to control inflation with with energy costs not being impacted by the economic situation, but but outside factors. All right, Tom, good stuff. Appreciate uh, you checking in with us, Tom Mantione. Awesome. He's managing director, UBS a Wealth Management. He's up in. Stamford, Connecticut. They have a huge operation up there in Stamford. Huge uh, trading floor there. Yeah. I, I'm not even sure if they still use it. Right also, now. our second Fairfield grad in uh, the same number of days. Is that right? All yeah. right, cool. But then he went to Wharton instead of Duke. Yeah. Well, what are you, you going to do? You what do you call it? The Fuqua School? The Fuqua School of Business. Fuqua. Yeah. J.B. Fuqua. Interesting. One of the first um, kind of like consolidator kind of guys. He was a, uh, you think, some of those big companies back in the 60s and 70s that owned multiple businesses. I feel uh, like Wharton those rolls guys. off the tongue a little bit easier. It does. Yeah. It does. So, <laughs> but we'll see. Well, the United Nations COP27 conference just finished up a few days ago. It was a two-week conference where leaders from all over the world got together to talk about climate and sustainability and all that good stuff. And Bloomberg Intelligence Send our expert over there, Shaheen Contractor. She is an ESG research analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. She joins us live in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio because she doesn't phone it in. She comes to the office, which she gets a gold star for. Um, so Triple Shaheen, mint. What's that? Triple, Triple mint. Triple mint, as Tom Keen would say. Ooh. So, Shaheen, what are some of the takeaways that you had from the COP27 conference? So, first of all, thank you for the gold star. <laughs> you bet. Uh, the COP conference was – it was – 
at least being my first time there it was amazing i think it's two weeks you know when 40000 people descend to talk about one thing my key takeaways were first you know on the ground the most divided topic was around carbon markets so companies using offsets to basically offset their own emissions that was the most divided topic the other frustration was this gap we had and i mentioned this before around companies carbon reduction goals and no real plan to do that on the ground as we progressed towards the end many many people called it a disappointing cop mainly mm. because of the mitigation aspect we didn't build on emission reductions that we already established last year in glasgow why why, why why didn't we get there uh, and are we sticking at least to the commitments we made in glasgow apparently there was a fight to stick to that a lot of the things were debated that we had already established in glasgow which i thought was interesting this year what's being said is there was a lot of sort of road blocking from a lot of the oil rich countries like saudi arabia to actually push things off the finish line that was the main road block this year so but in the end there was some kind of communique yeah. right yeah. what so in the end were we able to save cop 26 at cop 27 We were able to maintain it, I believe. I mean, the way we went beyond that is the is the establishment of this loss and damage fund, which was really groundbreaking. It's basically the more developed countries creating a fund and paying some of the more less developing countries for the uh, for the adaptation of climate and mitigation. That was the main thing that came out. That's more. That's less on the emission reductions, right? It's about money. China is is China involved in COP twenty seven? Are they are they constructive are they supportive what are they they sort of i i think they sort of laid low this one in cop compared to last year where they came out with a little more fanfare uh this year was a lot more about the middle east okay so what's the where do we go next year by the way next year is dubai dubai okay they, they don't come to detroit or cleveland do they i don't uh i i don't know but that would be great columbus could host columbus could but <laughs> detroit is i, I You know, I am an avowed fan of the Ohio State University, but yes. I love Detroit. It's yeah, such a great city. Gearhead. Um and for conferences as well, it's really uh ideal. Um in terms of the big cops, I feel like Glasgow got a lot of attention and Sharm El Sheikh not so much. Why is that? Uh I think a lot more was achieved in Glasgow in terms of actual mitigation of emissions Paris was obviously the biggest 2015 I think that's when you know all the countries decided to put nationally determined contributions or goals around their emissions um this one sort of built off that but the biggest one was this loss this loss and damage fund for sure so what what is the role of the United States in these efforts year to year to year so it's it's an effort of all the countries right to the conference of parties they come in and they negotiate basically and the end goal every country has to agree on it and that's really the big challenge you come in knowing what your country wants but you don't know what the other one wants so it's really a negotiation between everyone so uh, the idea this year the groundbreaking move is that the rich countries who have benefited from you know destroying the environment are going to pay the developing nations so, who have been hurt is that yeah. the idea yes so they established a fund which is and this is the first time that agenda came on to sort of discussions they established a fund now the workings of the fund how much who pays all that will be established 
over the next year before we head into the bay. That's that's what I understand so far. Okay. So what what was some of the more optimistic expectations going into COP27 that maybe were not fulfilled? Well, the biggest expectation is, you know, continued emission reductions. We all see these reports about us being, you know, far off what we really need to be in terms of temperature alignment. The expectation is we build more of those goals, more countries update their goals to meet sort of the Paris, Paris aligned um, sort of temperature benchmark, and that didn't happen. So what are the takeaways for investors? What do you bring back to Bloomberg Intelligence that's actionable for so bankers? The biggest takeaway for me is primarily around these, again, these companies' carbon reduction goals. What do they actually mean for a company's investment? So what the UK did is actually interesting. During COP, they announced that they have this new plan. If a company has a goal, they actually have to have a plan to meet it. And there's a lot we can do with that. We can establish, you know, is it NPV positive? Is it NPV negative? Given different carbon prices, given different scenarios. And I think that's the biggest question we have today. And that um, kind of discourages greenwashing. Yeah. Because that means a company can't just come out and say, hey, we're going to be carbon neutral exactly. by 2050, and but they have no idea how. Exactly. And, yeah. and we need that to determine financial impact. Like we've done this great example of SSAB where we find that their carbon goal is NPV positive only in a high steel price, high carbon price environment, and otherwise it's not. So we need insights like that. That's actionable. What are the incentives for U.S. companies to go green? So, well, the Inflation Reduction Act that we, we saw recently puts a lot of subsidies, puts a lot of tax breaks onto, you know, clean energy, onto renewable fuels. Um, that would be the biggest sort of incentive. I think over the long term, if you imagine some kind of carbon price and regulation that comes in, it is cost positive. It is efficient to have these things in place for your bottom line. Hmm. All right. I don't know. I don't know if investors are buying it. I mean, that's still a lot of skepticism in, out there. There is in the U.S. In Europe, I think, where you have a more sturdy regulatory mechanism via the EU yep. emission trading scheme, you do see a cost. There's a very substantial cost to companies. We're skeptical. The thing is, Paul and I are skeptical. I, I know, I know. ESG I've spoken stuff. to you all before. I know. But, but we love having you on the show. <laughs> exactly. So, so that's why we're like, hey, Shaheen, convince us. Okay. But yep. We're not You're the really one to do it. it. Yeah. All right, Shaheen Contractor, great stuff. ESG Research Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence back from Egypt, the COP27 uh, conference there. And again, they're always in these pretty cool locales. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com.